and read verses 3 through 5. Verses 3 to 5. Let's hear now the word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Amen. You may be seated. Now, last week we began by considering in verse 1 that Paul was writing as an apostle of Christ Jesus. He was called of God. It was not of his own calling. He was converted. He was brought to faith in Jesus Christ. And he was called to preach the gospel. And we talked about how much the book of Ephesians is about the will of God. How many times... We see God's will referred to even in this opening chapter. How many of those prepositional clauses we find where it speaks about in him that in verse four, he chose us. He predestined us. Uh, Verse seven in him. We have redemption according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. He made known to us the mystery of his will, his kind intention In him also we have obtained an inheritance according to his purpose. Uh, You realize very quickly in this letter that this is all about God. That this letter is centered upon the triune God. Upon God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You see that as well, don't you? When you see in verse 3, blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he talks about the work of the Father. But then you get down to the work of Christ. Uh, in Him, we see, or going back to verse 5, adopted through Jesus Christ. And then verse 7, in Him, uh, we have redemption through His blood. Speaking about the work of Christ. And then you get down to verse 13 and 14. And you see the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit is mentioned. In Him, Also, you, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So the father is brought forth in this chapter. The son is brought forth in this chapter and the Holy Spirit is brought forth in this chapter. All three persons. Carl Truman, I mentioned last week, said in a recent lecture that I heard that Too many evangelicals worship God like Unitarians. Too many evangelicals have a conception of God as one. And that certainly is true. We are monotheistic. But that one God is in three distinct persons. And each person of the Trinity is fully God. And when we worship God, we worship the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And the Lord our God is yet a one. He is one In essence, he is three indistinct persons. And we find that in this chapter. We shouldn't worship God when we think of God, boys and girls. Uh, We shouldn't think of of God as only one. But we should think of him as one in three and three in one. It's a great and powerful mystery, this trinity. But that's how we should conceive of God. That is how God reveals himself in the scriptures. Now, God called Paul 
And we saw that. We saw how he was an apostle. We saw he's writing this letter to the church and that the church in its entirety is called uh, or are called saints. And we saw that saints is not just for the uh, spiritual honor roll of those in the church. It's, it's, this is not for the valedictorians in the church. The term saints is for the whole of the church. To the saints who are at Ephesus, he does not mean a select few of super spiritual people, but he means the entire congregation. Everybody who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ is a saint. And, and the Roman Catholic Church simply gets this wrong when they believe that those who do works of supererogation are the saints. Those who do the works, supererogation just simply means above and beyond the call of duty, if you will. And which, of course, is impossible. Uh, we, we can never go beyond what God has called us to do. If we do everything that God has commanded us to do, we are but unprofitable servants. We haven't done anything in addition that merits us anything greater uh, in terms of merit than what Christ has done. Christ has earned it all for us. So then in verse 2, we move on. We saw last week, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we talked about that the gospel is ultimately about grace. The gospel is simply God's unmerited favor given to us. Now, we're going to talk more about this unmerited favor today because we're going to talk about how God chose us in Jesus Christ, how God elected us before the foundation of the world, before you did anything good or bad, even before you existed, boys and girls, even before the sun or the earth or the moon or the stars existed, in the mind and in the plan of God, God chose everybody who was going to be a part of his church. And he chose us according to his grace. Now let's look at a few things here. Here. Number one, we're going to look at the uh, at verse three at the blessedness that is spoken of here, the praise that is given to God. And then in verse four, and if we have time, verse five, we're going to talk about the doctrine of election and predestination. So the two main things I want to point out to you here is the praise of God in verse three. And then we'll look at these doctrines of election and predestination. All right. Now, look at verse three in your Bible with me. And note here that Paul praises God. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So Paul begins the content of his letter with a praise of adoration to the living God. And this, of course, again, shows you how theocentric Paul's thinking is, that Paul opens his letter with praise to God. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones has said that Probably the most miserable people in the world, certainly the most miserable even among Christians, are those people who are always thinking about themselves, who are always thinking about what they don't have or how difficult it is in their life, or who are always thinking about how they wish things were different in their life. And these are, are the most miserable of people. If you... If you deal with people who are regularly in this kind of sorrow and misery is because they are focusing too much or you're focusing or I'm focusing too much on myself and on you, on yourself. And you are not focusing sufficiently on God. Paul is filled with praise. He is filled with joy. He is filled with a sense of delight because he's focusing on the object of our delight, on the triune God. 
And so this is not just pious language that he is throwing in there. This is not just empty rhetoric just to warm the congregation up until he gets to the substance of what he wants to teach about. This is an honest expression under the ministry of the Holy Spirit working in Paul's life that he praises the triune God. He praises God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing, showing us there the divinity of Jesus Christ because it would be a violation of the first commandment to praise God and Jesus if Jesus was not also fully God. You shall have no other gods before me is the first commandment. And because we see worship being given to the Son as well as to the Father, we see that the Father and the Son are co-equal in power and in glory and that the Son is to be worshipped as the Father. And also, as we will see later in this text, so also the Holy Spirit. That's why we baptize in the name of the Father and in the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is one of the greatest revelations in the Bible is because it, it revealed to us more clearly than we had ever seen up to that moment in redemptive history something of the essence of God. The distinctness of God being one in three persons, each fully God. And he praises God for this. He, he says, blessed be, praise be to God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he, he is worshiping God immediately out of the gate. We see this with the Psalms, don't we? How often we see the Psalms praising the Lord, worshiping God. And so I want to challenge you today and ask you, where are you in worship? Worship is the highest activity of man. It, it, is, it is one of the greatest activities that is to be engaged in because we are worshiping our Creator, our Redeemer, and we, we are engaged in some of the highest uh, delights that is given unto man. Uh, I want to ask you this morning if you need that kind of joy or enthusiasm that Paul expresses here in your life. If you do, the problem may be that you are not focusing on God as you should. Let me read you Martin Lloyd-Jones, what I said earlier. Here's a quote. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I can certainly testify after many years of pastoral experience, says Lloyd-Jones, that the people who give me the impression of being most miserable in their spiritual life are those who are always thinking of themselves and their blessings, their moods and states and conditions. And so are you thinking about yourself too much? Maybe you need to focus, as Paul does, on God, praising God, worshiping God. Have you ever gone to prayer where you said, I'm going to seek God for nothing but simply going to praise his name? I think I've shared with you in the past, sometimes I've gotten together uh, with others, uh, sometimes with students, sometimes with some of you, and, and we've gotten together for prayer and we, we've said, well, let's, let's ask God for nothing. Let's just see if we can concentrate on worship. See if we can concentrate on praise and adoration. Let's see how long we can go. And I tell you, some of the sweetest prayer meetings have been those where we never thought of ourselves, where we said we're not going to think of ourselves. We're not going to allow ourselves to ask for anything for ourselves. We're going to focus on who God is. And some of the sweetest movements of the Holy Spirit have been on some of those very meetings. 
Notice Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Uh, Every spiritual blessing. uh, Those blessings that are given to us in the Spirit because of the finished work of Jesus Christ is what Paul's talking about. Every spiritual blessing. That is, when you come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, the Holy Spirit comes into your life and He blesses you. We've been talking about this in Sunday school lately. He, he comes as a comforter. He comes as a sanctifier. He comes and He takes up residence within you. And what does He do? He does many things. He gives you a foretaste of glory. He makes you more like the Lord Jesus Christ. He teaches you. He instructs you. He helps you to pray. He prays with you as you're lurching and striving and struggling and falling back in prayer. And as you're wrestling and you're, you're having a hard time praying, the Spirit helps you to pray. Just like a father helps his child when the child is learning to ride the bike and they're very unsteady. And, and dad is running with the child there to try and catch the child before he or she topples over. Or running with the child to help them get their balance. This Holy Spirit is working within us to help us in our, in our striving and in our praying. And He is there to, to pray with us as well as for us. The Holy Spirit is the earnest, we, we are told. What, the, notice here He says that He chose uh, Excuse me, verse 3, that He who blessed us with every spiritual blessing, we are told elsewhere in the Bible that the Holy Spirit is the earnest. He's the down payment for heaven. The Holy Spirit is in you now as an as a earnest. We talked about the McCalls selling their house. And, and you know you put down money when you buy a, a new house or when you're selling your house. They put down a deposit. It is so that you are saying, here, this is to show you that I am good for the rest of the loan and that I, I will pay it off in, in due time. And the Spirit dwells within us to show us that What he has begun within us, he will complete it to the day of redemption. And so these spiritual blessings, they include freedom from sin's bondage, fellowship with God, your communion with with God, the sense experientially that you have of love and peace and joy. That all comes by way of the Spirit. So let me ask you this morning, are you experientially familiar with the spiritual blessings of Christ? The blessings of which Jesus Christ has secured for you by his death and his resurrection, which he purchased for you. Are you experientially familiar with with these blessings on your soul? Do you really know what a Sabbath is really like? What it's really like to feast on Christ, to to allow the Lord's Day to be a market day for your soul, where you, you, you enjoy God and fellowship with him and communion with him. And you long for a a fuller sense of these heavenly blessings. I want to urge you to seek Christ while he may be found. And call upon him while he's near. Today is the day of salvation. If these things are foreign to you. If you say, well, I I never really have had any spiritual blessings before in my life. I I really, I don't know what it is to know the the fullness and enjoyment of God. Uh, You need to come to Christ. You need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You see... God has made you as one who bears his image. He has made you for himself. And if you do not have, have the Lord by faith in Christ, then you, you do not have everything that you were created to receive. 
And so what you do is you, you seek the things that you can find in the world and, you know, whether it's hobbies or your job, your employment, money, it, it may be uh, recreation, it may be pleasure, it may be whatever it may be. It, it, you're filling your life up with these things and saying, this is, this is what will give me satisfaction. This is what will give me a sense of blessedness, a sense of happiness. But inevitably these things fail because the, the creation was never to take the place of the creator. The creation, it's impossible. We're asking the impossible when we ask of our idols to fulfill us. They can't fulfill us. It's impossible. It's like trying to put a square peg in a round hole. It just it won't fit. It doesn't work. So this blessedness of which Paul speaks here in verse 3, this praise here, comes from a heart that has been operated upon by the Holy Spirit and he's been blessed in the heavenly places who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Paul has been blessed. Every Christian has been blessed by Christ and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And out of that we praise him. We worship him. I want to keep moving now. Because Paul moves on after he praises God in verse 3. Then he, he gets to the beginning of the gospel here in verses 4 and 5. And here's where we get to the doctrine of election and predestination. Now, you know, some denominations don't like this doctrine. And that's a shame because this is, this is a very important doctrine. And when you rightly understand it, it'll be a great source of help and comfort to you. A great sense of a source of joy for you. Now, let's just go and look and take this piece by piece in, in verse 4 here. And he says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, what is Paul saying here? Well, Paul is saying that if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a believer in Christ because Christ first chose you. You chose Christ because long ago, in eternity, he chose you. So all the spiritual blessings that are ours in Jesus Christ, which are spoken of in verse 3, they were secured for us by Christ, but they were chosen for us in Christ at the beginning. Let me say that again. They were secured for you by Christ in his work on the cross and at the resurrection. But they were planned for you from the very beginning of time. To put it simply this way. I've said this to you a number of times. Those of you who have been in this congregation for 17 years. You're probably tired of me hearing, hearing this and hearing me say this. The Father what? Planned your salvation. The Son accomplished your salvation. The Holy Spirit applied your salvation. And that which Jesus secures for us in his death and resurrection was planned long ago in the Father in eternity. And, and that's what Paul is saying. He's just saying it kind of in reverse. He starts with these blessings that are secured for us in Christ, but they were planned for us in the beginning. He chose us. That means he chose you in Jesus Christ. Now, he chose you. That's important to understand. He chose us in him. You were chosen not for yourself. You were chosen in Christ. 
That means there was no thing in you by which God should necessarily or inherently choose you. We were not chosen for ourselves in ourselves. We were chosen in Christ. And it's the virtue of Christ that enables the Father to choose us. He chose us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is a very humbling doctrine. And I think this is one of the reasons men militate against it. They don't like the idea that their salvation is wholly of God and not of themselves. They want to think they must have done something to contribute to their salvation. They must have done something to merit that salvation. But the Bible says no. It was the sheer good pleasure of the Lord himself who elected us. And therefore, this is a very humbling thing to, for sinners to hear. That, it was, that the basis of God's choice was not in response to something we did. Not even in response to God seeing our faith in Jesus Christ. Some people get around it and they say, well, God chose me because he looked through the corridor of time. And according to uh, his omniscience, God's omniscience, he saw that I one day would have faith. And so he chose me because he saw that I would have faith. But that's not what the Bible actually teaches. The Bible actually puts it in reverse. You one day will have faith in Jesus Christ because you were chosen in Christ. You were not chosen because one day you would have faith. You one day would have faith because you were chosen. Faith comes after regeneration. And if you and if you look at for example, take let's just take the life of of Paul, for example. I mean, think about Paul, boys and girls, with me for a minute. Here's a man who didn't want anything to do with Jesus. Now, is there anything in his life that would cause you to think Paul wanted to become a Christian? Was it while he was standing and holding the coats of the people who were stoning Stephen? Was he chosen because of that? Was it... Was it uh, while he was breathing out murderous threats? As the Bible tells us he was doing. (coughs) Was it while he was going to the Sanhedrin and asking for warrants to arrest people? Was it while he was on the road to Damascus to get more men and women and drag them back to Jerusalem to try them and execute them? You see, there's nothing. The Bible doesn't give us a single inkling to make us think that Paul was chosen on the basis of something in Paul. In in fact, when when we're honest about it, we see the, the life of Paul, we see really Paul didn't want anything to do with Jesus. There was no faith. He was chosen in spite of himself. He was chosen out of the sheer good pleasure of God. Look with me at Romans chapter 9 as well. Romans chapter 9. Uh, we see the same idea taught with regard to Jacob and Esau. Now, Paul goes back to the book of Genesis and brings up the story of Rebekah and Isaac and how they conceived twins. 
and the twins had not yet been born. And if you look at Romans 9, verse 12, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Now, who's the older? The older is Esau. The younger is Jacob. And then he says in verse 13, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And he quotes there from Malachi chapter 1. Now, he goes on, verse 14, What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. Now, notice what Paul is doing here. He's taking the example of two infant children, and he is saying, even before they were born, God had already determined which of these two children would become the father of the covenant, which of these two children would become a true believer in him, lay hold of the promise by faith, and which child would reject the covenant. And that he chose Jacob, and he rejected Esau. Now, as we said last week, boys and girls, did Jacob do anything to make him more attractive to God than Esau? Well, no. When you look at the historical account, Jacob was as much a sinner as Esau was. Jacob was a liar. He deceived his father. He stole the birthright from his brother. (coughs) So we see that, that Jacob was no more godly than Esau. They were both unconverted, ungodly men who were sinners before God. Both of them deserved justice. Both of them deserved to go into the place of eternal punishment. Both of them deserved hell. But it was the sheer good mercy of God that he chose before the foundation of the world. He chose Jacob. Now, this is what's so important that I want you to understand. that The doctrine of election should not be rejected Because if anything, it's one of the most gracious doctrines. What you have to understand, what Ephesians 1 teaches and what Romans 9 teaches is the doctrine of election is a doctrine of mercy. It's a doctrine that presupposes the fall and presupposes sin. And therefore, God elects to himself sinners, all of whom deserve condemnation, all of whom deserve judgment. I want you to keep with me here in Romans chapter 9 for a second. Look at verse 15. He deals with Pharaoh. Romans 9, 15, he says to Moses, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Now notice, this is talking about the doctrine of election. And notice how God couches the doctrine of election with Moses. He, he couches it in mercy. Pharaoh will not receive mercy. Now, does that make God unjust? Paul says, no. Verse 14, there is no injustice with God. If Pharaoh dies and goes to hell, that is completely fair. That is completely just of God. God has done Pharaoh no injustice. Pharaoh is simply getting what Pharaoh deserved. You see, the, the, the reason election is so wonderful and beautiful is it's God's mercy to us. God does not give you what you deserve when he elects you in Jesus Christ. And so God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And verse 16, Romans 9, Paul says, Now listen to this. So then it does not depend on the man. 
who wills or the man who runs. Notice what he's saying. It doesn't depend on what the man does, but it depends on God who has mercy. He quotes, for this very purpose I raised you up, speaking to Pharaoh, to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Okay? Now, notice what Paul does in verse 19. Because he anticipates, whenever you teach on this subject, inevitably there are people out there who say, but wait a minute, they raise a couple questions. One, that's not fair, or objections. They say, that's not fair. And then the other thing that is, well... Okay, if God shows mercy to whom he wants to show mercy, well then why does he blame Pharaoh and send him to hell? And that's what you see Paul anticipating in verse 19. Why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? And what is Paul's answer to that? Paul's answer to that is basically, check yourself, O man. You are but clay. He is God. He's the potter. He says, on the contrary, who are you, O man, that answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter, speaking about God, God is the potter, boys and girls, does not the potter, does not God have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath, what if God, willing to send us all to hell, to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. Again, notice what Paul is saying here. This is very important when you deal with the doctrine of election and predestination. That this is not some cold, abstract doctrine of God out in space just randomly choosing people. This is a loving God who is both holy and yet merciful. And because of the decree of the fall, he has decreed that he would send his son in the fullness of time to die for the sins of Adam and Eve and all their children. And having done so, Jesus Christ would secure for that the salvation of those whom God has chosen. And this is based on mercy, because that when, as God chooses out of that humanity, as he looks at the clay, as the potter, and he looks out at all that clay, and he chooses some for honorable use and some for dishonorable use, he does so in mercy. Because he does not have to choose any of fallen humanity. He does, he does not have to choose anyone. He would be perfectly righteous to condemn all the pieces of clay to dishonorable use. He would be just to send all of humanity to hell to the praise of his justice. But God says, I'm not going to do that. I will be praised in my justice, yes, but I will also be praised in my love, in my grace, and in my mercy. And so I will select from that clay a great multitude which no man can number. The elect is not a small few people. It is a great number from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And I will select a, a, a multitude, Revelation 7, 9, that no man can number. John the Apostle looks at and he sees a great multitude of people before the throne of grace when it's all said and done. 
I will elect a large amount of people and show mercy on them. And it will not compromise my justice, what I do to the wicked. If I show mercy to you, says God, that in no way compromises the justice I show to Pharaoh or Esau. I am simply showing you mercy. And Esau or Pharaoh or Judas cannot say that is not fair. Because Judas and Esau and Pharaoh are getting what's fair. They are getting what's fair. What you and I get is grace. What you and I get is mercy. And so the doctrine of election is one of the most comforting of doctrines, even though it can be unsettling to some when they begin to grapple with this because they realize, wow, it really wasn't up to me, was it? No, it wasn't. It was, it was God's grace. It really was grace. It was all of grace. Jesus said, I chose you. You did not choose me. And when you realize it's all of grace, it's a humbling thing. And that's what the gospel is supposed to do. The, the gospel humbles sinners. And it exalts the grace of God. And that's what the gospel should do. That God alone be glorified. He will not share his glory with another. It is God alone that saves. We who respond by grace in faith to Jesus Christ, Paul says that even the faith with which we have is a gift from God. Even the faith I have, I can't boast in that faith because it was given to me. I have nothing by which I might boast. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as the result of works, so that no one may boast. No one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand. There it is again. God did all this in eternity past that we should walk in him. Does that make me a robot? You say, absolutely not. The Bible says that God decrees all these things, yet he also says you are responsible before him. And you are responsible to come to Jesus Christ in faith. As I preach the gospel and as I invite you to come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are to come. And if you don't come, you can't blame God if you don't come to Jesus. You cannot blame God. If anybody's here outside of Jesus Christ this morning and you refuse to come to Christ, you cannot blame God. It is you who has chosen to reject Jesus. Jesus is urging you to put your trust in him. Jesus is welcoming you that whosoever would come unto me, I will in no way cast out. It just shows the hardness of your own heart if you don't come to Jesus. It just shows how stubborn you are. It just shows how wicked you are if you will not give your life completely to Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord. And nobody can say, well, God, it's your fault. Now, let's get back uh, to Ephesians 1, verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless uh, before him. Let me just uh, read you a few things here uh, from the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon, who would have yes and amen to everything I've just said. 
Here's a few quotes here. Spurgeon says this, It is no novelty that I am preaching. See, some people think, oh, Calvinism is something new. It's something different. Calvinism, Calvinism is just Augustinianism. And Augustinianism, he got it from Paul. And Paul got it from Jesus. So Spurgeon says, this is nothing new. This is no new doctrine. Spurgeon says, I love to proclaim these strong old doctrines that are called by the nickname, quote-unquote, Calvinism. It's anachronistic because it's really just the Bible that you know what I mean. But which are truly and verily the revealed truth of God as it is in Jesus Christ. He says, by this truth, I make my pilgrimage into the past. And as I go, I see farther and farther confessor after confessor, martyr after martyr, standing up to shake hands with me. Taking these things to be the standard of my faith, I see the land of the ancient peopled with brethren. That is, as Spurgeon looks back over church history, he sees all the people who affirm this doctrine. He says, I behold the multitudes who confess the same as I do and acknowledge that this is the religion of God's own church. Spurgeon goes on uh, in a different sermon. He says, I have my own opinion that there is no such thing as preaching Christ and him crucified unless we preach what nowadays is called Calvinism. It is a nickname to call it Calvinism. It is a nickname. It's only a nickname, boys and girls. But he said, Calvinism is the gospel. And nothing else. He said, I do not believe we can preach the gospel if we do not preach justification by faith without works. Nor unless we preach the sovereignty of God in his dispensation of grace. Nor unless we exalt, listen to this, the electing, unchangeable, eternal immutable, conquering love of Jehovah. Nor do I think we can preach the gospel unless we base it upon the special and particular redemption of his elect and chosen people, which Christ wrought out upon the cross. In another sermon, Spurgeon said, you must first deny the authenticity and full inspiration of the Holy Scripture before you can legitimately deny election. That's Charles Spurgeon. I'll give you a couple other quotes. George Whitfield. Whitfield said, We are all born Arminians. It is grace that turns us into Calvinists. Calvinism did not spring from Calvin. We believe that it sprang from the great founder of all truth. And then one more. I have a whole, I have two pages worth of quotes. I'm just giving you selected ones. Give you another one from Spurgeon. I question whether we have preached the whole counsel of God unless predestination with all its solemnity and sureness be continually declared. Well, I think we've declared it. I'm going to pick up, Lord willing, next week when we see that we are chosen in Jesus Christ to be holy and to be blameless. Let's uh, join together in prayer.